Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the joy and the, the uh, pleasure of being in the company of other members of the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Father, thank you for the joy that you've given us for that kind of fellowship. It is uh, a unique fellowship, Father, one we do not experience in any other way that the world never knows, Father. The joy of being in the presence of the Holy Spirit as he unites us. And Father, we thank you that uh, we can do it even more over your word in the presence of your counsel. Uh, Father, thank you so much that for all the things that could have kept us from here tonight, for the many ways in which our day may have unfolded such that we would have found it impossible to be here. Lord, all of those things, though we don't even understand what they may have been, those obstacles, those unplanned emergencies, Father, for, for all that could have happened, your grace, Father, and your mercy for us, determined to bring us here, and we thank you, Father, for that. May we be uh, worthy of that attention. May may we be worthy, Father, of that effort in that we may give our mind and our heart to a serious study of your word tonight. Father, your word is is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and Father, in our hearts it divides us. It it reveals the untruth uh, of our nature, Father. It reveals the sinfulness of our nature, and then it gives us an opportunity, Father, to know the truth and by comparison bring ourselves more in alignment with that truth. And we thank you, Father, for that opportunity. But we recognize it brings conviction, perhaps, and it brings challenge to our way of thinking. And uh, we stand ready, Father, to be challenged and to be convicted because we know, Father, it's the only way to grow. Thank you that you've given us that opportunity in your word. I uh, also lift up, Father, the intentions of those in this room, those who may not have uh, felt the opportunity to raise those intentions, but nonetheless you know them. We lift them up before you. We ask for your divine will to be done. We ask, Father, that uh, as the great counselor and comforter, you would bring a peace to the hearts of those in this room who have needs, that they would know that they can depend on you, Father, that you will work things to good, though though they may not see the solution in front of them for their needs or for their concerns, they understand that you are even at work now to bring about good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Thank you, Father, for that faithfulness. And may we go away not only enlightened, Father, and not just encouraged, but emboldened, Father, to do the work of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 18. We are picking up in 18 again, but I want to give us a quick moment of review just because it's been two weeks. So if you'll open up to that chapter with me, uh, let's remember where we've come in the first 14 verses. Essentially, there were two parables that we've studied so far as we've gone through the beginning of this book. The first was the one of the widow and the unrighteous judge. If you may remember, the point of that teaching, as Jesus gave it, was essentially to encourage us to pray and not lose heart because the Father as Christ said, will bring justice to his elect. And out of that, we understood that the disciples had to be ready to accept the reality that in the end, in the days before the Messiah returns, we will find a world that will not have, largely speaking, will not have received that Messiah. A world that is largely opposed to him. And that's the point, of course, in that statement Jesus made about will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? You know, no is the answer to that question. Jesus' own rejection, therefore, the one that's about to occur in Jerusalem, merely weeks away at this point, that rejection is just a forerunner for the disciples' own persecution in their walk. And then for the persecution of the church after them, throughout the ages. Know that when they persecute you, as Jesus said, that they first persecuted me. 
that they will not love you, that they hate you. For if you were of the world, they would love you. But because you are not of the world, because you've been taken out of this world, they will hate you. That there is an, optimate, there is an opposition to the gospel. Even going no further than that, it's just useful to remember to put yourself back in the mindset of the disciple. This is, this is unbelievable to them. I mean, who in their right mind in the day that these men walked the earth, who in their right mind would have proposed that when the Messiah actually does arrive on the earth, His coming won't be self-evident and received by all? That it would actually be a, a matter of a question in people's mind whether they should believe in Him or not? In the light of the way they assumed He would come, that's a nonsensical thing to consider. It would be like you and I today, considering when Jesus arrives in His second coming, will people debate whether or not it's truly Him? Well, knowing how He comes in His second coming, we know the answer to that question is, well, of course, no, they won't debate it. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's what Scripture tells us. But now put your mind back in the time of these men as the apostles. They didn't appreciate at that point that there were two comings of Christ. They only knew of one in their mind. And so when the one has occurred in their very presence... The idea that it won't be a successful, all-encompassing, victorious arrival is completely bizarre to them. They have no appreciation of that as yet. And Jesus is building that appreciation in small steps, but it hasn't taken hold yet. So for them to hear from him that there will not be universal faith in response to his arrival is a bizarre statement. If you are in fact the Messiah, then you have the power to ensure that all men know you and believe in you except that he did not come to judge the world, he came to save it. And that saving process required that he be put to death. So that's the essence of that first parable, was an appreciation for the fact that though I will not be successful in the way you assume in my first coming, don't despair, don't lose heart, don't fail to pray, I will nonetheless bring justice for my elect, though the world at, at large will not accept me. And then into the second parable on the tax collector and the Pharisee, in that parable, we understood the point being that true faith, faith in the true living God, is based on, first, repentance, a turning away from our own sin and our life opposed to God, and then, secondly, a turning toward God for mercy, in a position of vulnerability, in a recognition that you have no other hope. The gospel message that we know so well. In contrast to that, you see the Pharisee who stands as representative of the world's false religion, what is the world's false religion, in a nutshell? Worshipping a God made in our own image. And here's this Pharisee standing in the temple, declaring himself to be righteous in his supposed prayer to God. And we studied that at length. His view, of course, is that God would favor him because he was deserving of God's favor. He was owed it. And as such, then, having earned it through his good works, he had every right to expect salvation would be his. It's a worship of self, not a worship of God. That's a false religion. It's one that ultimately leads to hell. And it is the one the world practices, though they give it many titles, though they call it many different things. It all comes down to essentially that view. So already in these opening verses of chapter 18, from what we've studied so far, there's a pattern here. I don't know if you've noticed that, but there's a pattern emerging in these verses that we've already studied so far. There's a recurring topic. Give yourself a moment as we begin to go back into the verses out of chapter 18 today. Give yourself just a moment to see if you can pick up on the topic. Do you see the emerging pattern in this chapter? And I'll refer you back to a chapter that some of you, as you studied Luke with me in the past year and a half, you'll know as we study chapter 12 that I called chapter 12 of Luke a discipleship chapter. 
It's not necessarily thought of as that for, for the most part, but if you were to go study chapter 12 in its detail and look at how all the diverse topics in chapter 12, these seemingly disconnected and diverse topics, when you really study them as a whole, you realize that there's a thread that connects them all. And that thread is, what does being a good disciple of Christ mean in the way we live our life? And that thread of discipleship is what unites chapter 12. Well, in like way... Looking today in chapter 18, you're going to begin to see a pattern emerge. You could see it already in the first two points if you kind of watched carefully. You're going to see it much more clearly as we go through the rest of the middle section of the chapter today. There is a like, like chapter 12, there's a pattern emerging in this chapter. And that recurring topic is the nature of faith and its power to bring men into the kingdom. The nature of saving faith. And this is a topic that we'll talk as we go through the chapter a little more today and in, in the next week when we finish it. We'll talk more about why this is such an important topic for the disciples at this moment in Jesus' ministry. But for now, let's go into the verses of chapter 18 and begin to look at the pattern continuing to emerge in chapter 18, verse 15, where we pick up today. And they were bringing even their babies to him, meaning to Jesus, of course, so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it at all. This is an interesting scene, and it it seems at first somewhat disconnected from the rest of the chapter, much as I said you you would find the chapter, uh, chapter 12 to be constructed, these little vignettes that just sort of appear one after another in the chapter. And it follows the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and it precedes a story that we're going to study here in a minute of a man asking Jesus how he may obtain eternal life. And even in just those two references, the comment, the the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee on the one hand, and then this story we're about to study about a man whose question is, how do I obtain eternal life? Even with those two references sandwiching on either side of this particular story here, you can already see that pattern emerging again. Can't you? When we've already said that the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector is ultimately a story that exhibits or illustrates true faith in contrast to a worldly false view of faith or a false religion. And in the story that's to come, we're to learn, again, a fundamental issue of how do you obtain eternal life? How do you enter into the kingdom? How are you saved? And in connecting them here, we now see another story talking about the true nature of faith and its power to save. So what do we learn from these verses along that topic, along that line of thinking? Well, let's look at the scene that Luke describes here. First, the scene here is very brief, but knowing a little about the Jewish culture and and as well maybe about human nature is going to help us fill in some of the gaps in this story and get a better understanding of what's going on. From Luke's text, we know that Jesus was in the midst of a crowd as he traveled. He's been in crowds now for quite some time. They're only getting bigger as he approaches Jerusalem here in the last weeks of his ministry on earth. So he's got a large crowd around him. And the the crowds at this point in his ministry are largely adoring crowds. Now, that's not going to stay that way forever. You know that. But at this point, at least, they're still adoring crowds. So in a setting like that, these people apparently, as we can see from the text, are bringing their infants to Jesus to have him pray over them and lay his hands on them. Now, you don't get that detail out of Luke, but you do get that detail out of some corresponding verses in Matthew, which we're going to look at here in a minute. It's interesting to note, though, even as we go past these verses in Luke, the word for babies, as it's being used here in my translation, yours may say infants, yours may say children. The word in the Greek, literally, brephos, means an infant or a newborn. 
The point being, we're talking about extremely young children. We're not talking about a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old child. We're talking about children that have to be carried into the arms of Christ so that he can uh, lay hands on and pray over them. So Luke here is emphasizing by his choice of words the, the, the very young age of these children. And that's important for one particular reason. These are children too young to understand who Jesus was and obviously too young for them to interact with him or to appreciate the gospel message, or to respond to the gospel message. These are children at an age so young that intellectually, they can't show any evidence of faith, they can't be, the gospel can't be explained to them, and they can't be expected to make a human response that would give evidence of faith in that moment. So these are children who are just a passive uh, participant in this little ritual that we hear Luke describing. That's the significance of the fact that they're very young. You'll see that more in a minute. Now, this whole idea of bringing this baby to Jesus, this is a very common tradition in Jewish culture. And in fact, you can still see it carried out today, right? You see people who bring their babies to famous people. I mean, the Pope is an obvious example, but you could, I mean, you see it done with presidents on the campaign trail, right? Here's my baby. Why do you, think about that. Why do we give a baby to a presidential candidate? Wouldn't you be a little worried about doing that? I mean, it's maybe the last person you want to have holding your baby? I don't know. I mean, you know, people used to do this to Elvis. It doesn't matter who you are. People just throw babies at you if you're famous. That's a human instinct for some reason. So there's nothing terribly surprising about that kind of behavior all by itself. But I want you to understand in this situation that the behavior is a little different in that they were bringing the babies to Jesus for a spiritual blessing. And that, that's consistent not just in the case of Christ, but it went on in general in that day. Very common for rabbis to be asked to bless a child in this same way, to lay on hands and to pray over them. We'll see this a little more clearly, as I said, if we look at Matthew's Gospel. And in Matthew's Gospel, it seems, based on Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus actually addresses this issue of children coming to him on more than one occasion in his ministry, because Matthew records it in two separate locations, and he does so differently in each case. So that would suggest he's recording it from the standpoint of it happening more than once, while Luke only records one such incident. In chapter 18, you see it described in Matthew, and then again in chapter 19, you see it described. And the content of each is different enough that it's fair to assume these are different moments, not the same moment described again. For example, in chapter 19 of Matthew, Matthew 19, 13, you can hear him say this, Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these." Now, that would be the comparable set of verses out of Matthew for what we just studied in Luke. Clearly, they're the most similar. And from Matthew's account, we learn that the purpose of the parents bringing the children was for these spiritual reasons, for the laying on of hands and for the praying over them. They wanted a spiritual blessing for their children. And when you look at the disciples' reaction, the one that's mentioned both in Luke and then here again in Matthew, you have to wonder what was bothering them, don't you? Because we're told they rebuked the crowd. They rebuked. It's one thing to say that they prevented the crowd or stood in the way or discouraged the crowd or however you might want to say it. No, the scriptures are clear. They rebuked the crowd. That means that they were telling the crowd it was wrong for them to bring their children to Jesus to ask for a blessing. They were opposing it on the basis that these people were doing the wrong thing. And that's what rebuke means in scripture. It means that you're calling somebody out for doing the wrong thing. So, again, why would they have seen the behavior of these people to be fundamentally wrong? What do you think the reasoning is? Well, you know, perhaps they thought this kind of, of courtesy was beneath Jesus. As Messiah, 
this, this is a courtesy that rabbis extended to people, and perhaps they saw Jesus in his role as the Messiah as being unworthy of stooping down to this degree of courtesy or of tradition or of ritual. Or, or maybe they thought it was just pointless. You know, if you believe he's the Messiah and if you believe he's there to save people and bring people into the kingdom and usher them into the kingdom, then what good purpose is served by wasting his time blessing children who are so young they couldn't possibly understand the offer of the kingdom, much less become a participant in it? assent to it. In other words, agree to it. It's a pointless thing. It's a waste of time. Maybe their concern was that it was just a pointless waste of time. In any case, I mean, we're speculating here on the cause, but in any case, it's clear enough that they did not think that this should be something Jesus was doing. His answer to them, or his response to them, is very interesting. He says, don't hinder them. Don't hinder them. The word for hinder in the Greek, kaluo, it literally means to forbid. So what he's saying is, don't forbid them. And that would be consistent with a rebuke, right? A rebuke would be a word of, of, uh, of some kind to the crowd to say, you can't do this. Don't do it. It's wrong to do this. He says, no, don't forbid them from doing it. Don't stop them from doing it. It's interesting, the word for forbid in the Greek actually comes from another Greek root, which itself means punish. So there's this negative implication here of don't, not only don't stop them, but don't punish them over them. Don't chastise them over it. Don't forbid them. He's saying there should be no prohibition from children seeking after him. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute, we're talking about children who are being dropped in his arms, children that are being led there by their own parents. Well, that's true enough, but what Jesus does with the moment is he goes a a step further than simply dealing with don't stop them from bringing infants. Jesus broadens the discussion in his response. He says, don't stop children from coming to me because it is of these kind that will enter the kingdom. It will be of this nature, of this kind that will enter the kingdom. So do not prohibit children from seeking after me. Now, based on those verses all by themselves, we might conclude that Jesus here is merely speaking about the practice of bringing children to him for a blessing. You might, if you're not careful, and if you just read Luke's gospel all by itself, you could come away from this moment saying that Jesus is simply saying, don't prevent people from letting children come to me for a spiritual blessing, for a laying on of hands or for prayer. Because after all, that was the intent the parents had in the first place. But as I just said, Jesus has broadened the discussion in his response. And I want to show you why, or in how. And we're going to take a few minutes to do this. First thing I want to say is it makes no sense whatsoever, contextually, to come away with the impression that he has just said, literally, don't stop children from being brought to me physically. In other words, it makes no sense for us to conclude that his concern was, as long as I'm walking on the earth, as long as I'm with you until the day I die and go to heaven, you know, until I'm resurrected, for the meantime, don't stop children from coming to me so I can lay hands on and bless them. If that's the extent, the total extent to which he was referring, that makes no sense. Number one, it has no spiritual value beyond the moment. I mean, he was only going to be on the earth a few more weeks and then he's gone. Why would it be recorded in Scripture for us if that was the full extent of its meaning? What's the real significance of that kind of a statement? There is none. Now, its significance is not in the literal, physical sense. It's in the spiritual sense. And it's a lasting one, one that continues to this moment. It's a, it's a mandate to the disciples that is still in effect for you and I today. It refers to people coming to him in the way you and I say it to one another. Come to Jesus. Well, when I say that to somebody today, I don't mean into his physical presence. That's not possible in this moment. I'm talking in a spiritual sense, in the sense of faith. And that's the sense in which he says what, he, what Jesus says about Do not hinder them. Do not prevent them from coming to me. It's in that sense. In the sense of coming to know him, in seeking after him, if a child 
expresses an interest, or if a child has a desire to know Christ, do not hinder them. Now, why would he have to say that? In fact, why would he even feel like that's a necessity to, to stay? Why would he be afraid that they would stop a child under those circumstances? Well, that's why I said we have to spend a little bit of time looking at The second piece of evidence comes again out of Matthew. And it's going to be found in that second description that Matthew has in chapter 18 of children being brought to Christ. So we're going to go to a different set of verses out of Matthew chapter 18. If you turn with me there now, we're going to read there from a discourse in Matthew that's recorded around another moment when children are coming into Christ's presence and he rebukes the dis- or and he teaches rather the disciples about that moment. This begins in verse 2 of chapter 18 of Matthew. And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now the context of Matthew here, I guess I would say, reveals a great deal more of Jesus' motives as he's telling the disciples not to hinder the children. It's a different moment. We have to consider that, but it's also in a similar vein of discussion. Now, one thing I haven't said up to this point, which should have been obvious to everyone here, is this application that you can make from these verses about the nature of faith. Come to me as if a child, as a child comes to me. Come to me with a child. People often say a childlike faith. That's a clear and obvious application. It is certainly reasonable to say that from these verses, we should expect that when faith arrives in the heart of an individual, it would come much like a child would approach Christ, completely trusting in Him, completely without a pretense, without a false motive, without any kind of facade. It's a genuine and honest uh, approaching of Christ. But there's a great deal more in, in, in that same kind of thinking that we don't necessarily consider. For example, it also means coming with no expectation that God is going to gain any value in us. A child does not come before God assuming that he has anything to offer God. He is self-evidently without anything to offer as a child, and therefore there's no assumption in his heart that he had to earn God's favor. Children don't generally live in a mindset that says, I have to earn the love of my parents. They take it for granted. It's also in that sense that a child comes in. A childlike faith is what an adult should bring. Those are all good and obvious applications. But I'm not going to spend much time beyond what I just said on those issues because I don't think that's at the heart of the teaching in chapter 18 of Luke. In other words, as true as it is, it's not the main point. The main point has to do with a more literal sense of children coming to Christ and what Jesus is teaching about the nature of faith in a child. Back in Matthew 18, let's see how that's developed here and then we'll make a cross application back to Luke. And look what he says in beginning in verses 3 and 4. He places this entire discourse that he's about to have with the disciples on the nature of, of children coming to him. He places this entire discourse in the context of salvation and the nature of saving faith. Look in verse 3. He talks of a conversion and of entering the kingdom of God. In verse 4, he talks about humbling oneself, as in repentance. And again, about entering the kingdom of heaven. So in those opening verses, it's clear enough that the, the context of this discussion has become a context of salvation. About salvation itself. So clearly, what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to use children to make a clear statement about the nature of salvation and the kind of faith that leads to salvation. He set that up by the way he's introduced the context or the discussion here. Then in verse 5, Jesus moves the conversation to the issue of receiving children in his name. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So though he's talking about salvation as a topic, he's still talking about literally children coming to him. 
Some have often looked in these verses and quickly moved to the point of making the child a symbol or a metaphor for something else, forgetting that it also has a literal meaning of its own. Jesus is talking about children. So, the overall topic of the discussion is salvation, and therefore the only reasonable interpretation of his comments in verse 5 would be this. Whoever whoever would accept a child's confession of faith and receive that child into the brotherhood of the church, that person has received Christ himself. The child's sincere confession of Christ is to be accepted on its face without preconditions, without prejudgments, and without any other test being necessary. And when we do so, when we accept the child's genuine confession, we are receiving Christ in that moment because that child's confession is proof itself that God is at work in that child's heart. So in that sense, we've received Christ in that moment. Now, I'm predicating this entire statement on the fact that the child's confession is genuine, that it's not an act, it's not a game, the child's not just playing along because a parent told them to say these words and they've said, you know, we all understand that. But if a child of their own volition makes a sincere confession of faith, we are not to put preconceived limitations on what is acceptable to God. We're not to say, well, I'm sorry, honey, you're not old enough. And parents do that. Church leaders do that. We don't typically allow a child to confess until they've at least reached the age of six. You know, or statements like that that you will hear sometimes because of an assumption, an unbiblical assumption, an unbiblical assumption that says intellectual assent is the basis of true faith. That's not in Scripture. Believe in your heart. And by the way, God is the maker of all things. He knows that the intellectual center of the body is the brain. And so if he wanted to say, believe in your mind, he could have said that. But repeatedly, throughout all of Scripture, he says, believe in your heart, which is an interesting statement when you think about it, because what he's saying is belief is not an intellectual process. It is a spiritual process that results in intellectual assent afterward. The brain changes as a result of the heart, not the other way around. And so he's suggesting that when we put limitations on who may come to him on the basis of arbitrary limitations, like age then we've assumed that the salvation process happens in a way that Scripture doesn't say it happens. Now, why would he have to teach that to the disciples? Why would that have to be an issue in this moment? Well, I want you to consider the rest of Jesus' statements in verses 10 through 14 of this chapter of Matthew that we've gone to for a moment. Look in Matthew 18.10. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Despise. It's an interesting word when you talk about children, isn't it? Don't despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. An interesting statement, isn't it? This is a famous parable you find elsewhere in the Gospels. This is where Luke happens, or Matthew happens to record it. And he teaches this famous parable of the lost sheep here. And it's notable that Matthew places it in the middle of Jesus' teaching on allowing children to come to him. In fact, as you notice in verse 14, uh, Matthew actually has Jesus making the reference to the lost sheep being equivalent to a child. The lost sheep is is a child in the case of how Matthew teaches this parable. And in comparing the child to one of the lost sheep of his fold, I want you to notice some of the imagery that's implicit in this parable. There are a hundred sheep in God's fold. Not 99, 
There are a hundred, but only 99 are currently safe and in the fold. In other words, there's one missing. And that shepherd is out searching until the one that's missing is found and brings it home. And I don't have time tonight, perhaps, to, to delve into all the depths of what this parable means and all its richness. So it's sufficient, I think, for us to take note tonight of just the facts that are relevant to our conversation tonight out of Luke. And that is that this lost sheep is considered to be one of God's fold even before it's found. And yet, while it's still lost, God still sees it as one of His. It's not as though it's a goat that turns into a sheep after it's found. It is a sheep from the day one. It's just a lost sheep, and God's already got it in His number. It's one of the 100. And it only remains lost as long as it takes for the shepherd to retrieve it. Once it's found, it's brought home to complete the number of God's fold, a number that I would tell you out of chapter 1 of Ephesians was a number predetermined by God from the foundations of the world. And that number, once complete, is a number that satisfies God. Take note of verse 14. It is not the will of the Father that even one of His fold will perish. And I'm paraphrasing a little, but I think in the context of how He compares that one to the, 19, to the, to the 100, it's evidently... I think an appropriate way to, to characterize it. One of the fold would perish, meaning it was never in doubt that that lost sheep would one day be found. Or another way to say it is God will never be content with 99 sheep. And Jesus compares this lost sheep to a child and says that even it will not perish. So by what we hear in Matthew, what do we learn here? Well, we see that Jesus is talking about something much more important than merely this religious ritual of bringing infants to Jesus so that they can get blessed or prayed over. That's the least of his concerns when he says, do not hinder them. What he's saying here is that God's elect includes or can include children and can include very, very young children. And therefore, the disciples must not hinder them when they express an interest in coming to Christ. I want you to consider what the Jewish tradition, we'll get to this more in a minute, but there is a Jewish tradition that was being attacked in this teaching. What, what's the most important moment of a young Jewish boy's life? It's called a bar mitzvah, right? And it's built on a tradition of Jewish teaching that goes back well before the days of Christ. It's a tradition that says there are standards to be met to enter into the assembly of Israel. There are preconditions to being accepted into the, the assembly of Israel. Maturing issues, learning issues, performing issues. I have to know certain things, study certain things, demonstrate certain readiness before God, and in doing so, I become acceptable to the assembly of God, and I can therefore be considered part of the assembly of Israel, of the chosen people, of the race to be saved and brought into the kingdom. And I'm sorry, if you don't meet those preconditions, you're not in. And that's a Jewish thinking that was prevalent even in Christ's day. It is at the root of why the disciples rebuked the crowd over bringing infants to the Messiah. And it's self-evidently proof that they didn't understand the nature of saving grace through faith. They didn't understand it. And it only makes sense that they wouldn't understand it. They have no precedent for it. You and I, again, grew up in a, a teaching and in a, in a church that understands it, hopefully, and, and brought it to you correctly, I pray, but that's our benefit. That's not something that was always there. But if you go to this moment in history, though faith has always been the mechanism by which God saved men, the nature of the teaching and of the times had obscured that fact for most men. And as a result, they had taken to believe what they had been taught. 
which were preconditions of behavior and works were necessary to please God and enter into the assembly of God's people. And so Jesus corrects them on that point here to say, if a child comes to me, that's self-evident work of Christ in their heart, so when you receive them, you receive me. Do not exclude them on the basis of some precondition of your own invention. So we've already said Luke is portraying a series of events in this chapter to explain the nature of saving faith. So let's see if that thread now starts to weave a little more clearly in your mind. In verse 7 of chapter 18, Jesus made reference to God bringing justice for his elect. Then in verse 8, Jesus ends his first topic by adding that, that haunting comment that the Son of Man will not find faith on the earth when he returns. The rhetorical question that suggests he won't find faith on the earth when he returns. That the world will not be waiting in hopeful expectation of him. They'll be waiting to kill him as they've arrayed against Israel by the power of the Antichrist. So right away, he's been making references to God's faithfulness toward his elect and the fact that faith itself will be in short supply, which is a very revolutionary thing for a, a Jew to consider. And so now Luke records this incredible new detail about the nature of saving faith among even children. He says it, faith can come even upon a child. That faith saves men and that faith may enter the heart of even a small child because it is a work of God. And therefore, when faith is displayed in them, don't forbid them. This is an incredible revelation, and maybe even for some of you here today, it certainly would have been to a culture of Jewish thinking in their day. Look at what they did to bring children into the assembly. They were circumcised. Then they studied the Torah, the prophets, and the sayings, memorizing huge amounts of it in, mo in many cases. They performed the rituals of the faith. They observed all the festivals and the feasts. They had to attend the Passover. By a certain age, they had to participate in the Passover with the Father. Early teen boys were expected to demonstrate their readiness to enter into the assembly by proving themselves in a variety of ways, as I said already. Then as adults, they had to practice the sacrifices and the rituals under the law. I mean, if you miss any of those steps, you're out. How does an infant satisfy any of those things? Or how does a two-year-old, or how does a four-year-old? So there's a lot more we can say about this revelation as well as about the parables themselves, but we're going to hold it for time because I want to consider the next series of verses out of Luke itself. Because Jesus is going to come back to this point in a minute as he continues on this theme of saving faith. Look where he goes in verse 18 and onward in chapter 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this, or when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This is a classic exchange. I know you've all heard this probably at least once, if not many times. And it stands as contrast to that innocent child, doesn't it? In contrast to a child who self-evidently had nothing to offer God, here's a man who had everything the world had to offer. And he was looking to find entrance into the kingdom. The word for ruler here in the Greek, it's a general word. It could mean an official of some kind. It could mean magistrate. It could mean prince. So it's unclear what role he had. It really doesn't matter. It's simply a man of influence and wealth in that culture. We know from the other Gospels that he's quoted as being young, although Luke doesn't bring that out in his text. 
So it's a young man, a man of wealth and a man of power. When he approaches Jesus here, I also think it's fair to say his intentions seem sincere. In other words, I think he really wants to know. I think he really has a desire to be in God's kingdom. He's not playing with Jesus. Nothing in the text tells us that he's testing Christ. You know, like when we see the Pharisees coming before Christ, there's a sense, even in the way it's described, that their intentions are not honest or sincere. I don't get that sense here. I get the sense, on the other hand, that this man had a true, sincere interest to want to be a part of the kingdom, and he was looking for the way to get there. But, of course, he's putting preconditions on it just in the very way he asks the question of Christ. And you'll see that here as we look at the text. And so he poses this question. He says, what do I need to do to get into the kingdom. And that's what he means by inherit eternal life. We use different vernacular. We we say, be saved, go to heaven. Their way of saying it was eternal life, enter into the kingdom. All of these are synonyms for the same kind of outcome. Jesus' first words to this man are so interesting because at first he seems to kind of put off the point a little. That's not what he does. He begins to answer the question from the very first words that he speaks to this man. He's answering the question the whole time through. He asks the man, why are you willing to describe me as good? You say I'm good. I know you probably used the word in a flippant way. You probably just threw it in there as a gratuitous statement. I bet you didn't give it much thought. But let's give it some thought. Why are you calling me good? He reminds him that only God himself can be accurately described as good. And that's a profound statement, and I want to show you the profoundness of that statement before we move on. Think about what's wrapped up in that simple little comment. Jesus has just stated three distinct things in that one sentence. He's given us three pieces of knowledge in that one sentence. First, he begins by reminding us that the definition of good is not based on a range, but on a point. It isn't a sliding scale or a comparison between relative standards. Rather, it's a single point standard that is unforgiving. You are either good or you are not. You can't be mostly good or a little good. It's like being a little pregnant. It's a dichotomous condition. It is an either or. You are either good in the true spiritual sense of the word or you are not, in which case you are all bad. It is a black and white kind of condition. You either are or you are not. That's the point of when he says, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good, God. And in that, you see the second thing that he says here. He says that when it comes to qualifying for heaven, the standard for what is required to be considered good is established by God himself. He is the one who has established the standard of what defines good. If being good is an all or nothing proposition and not a sliding scale, then the only standard we should care about for measuring goodness is the one that God uses. Whatever he uses to qualify someone as good, that's the standard I want to know. Because if I've been measuring myself by the wrong standard, then when I get to the point of judgment, I'm going to be in a bad place. So, whatever it is, God, tell me what the standard is so that I know that standard so that I can be that standard because that's the only standard that matters. To use any other standard to determine whether or not we are good is just an exercise in fooling ourselves. So, the second thing he's teaching us here is that only God's standard for what is or isn't good should matter to us if our concern is getting into his kingdom. And then finally, the third thing Jesus taught with that one statement. Only God can meet his standard of good. Only God is good in the true sense of the word. No man can reach the standard required 
by God to declare us good and therefore enter into his kingdom. We don't have any hope to get into a kingdom where the standard to enter is to be as good as God. So why call me good is his point. If you think I'm just a man, then I'm not good in the true sense of that word. Only God is. On the other hand, if you're calling me good because you see me as God, then the conversation you're having with me is a ridiculous conversation. Right? Not the question, but the conversation that followed it is a ridiculous conversation if you're waiting for me to tell you all the things you have to do to please me when the standard is never make a mistake in your entire life. It's a ridiculous conversation. So either you don't know who I am, and that explains the reason we're having this conversation, or you do know what I am, in which case we need to talk about something different. But one way or the other, we've got a problem here. So he's answering the question in the very way he starts the conversation. He's pointing out the ridiculousness of what this man is trying to pursue, that he has the wrong standard, he's barking up the wrong tree, he's headed down the wrong road, however you want to say it, he's going the wrong way. His goal is the wrong goal. So then let's look at what he actually does with the question after that. And he moves on now to the answer of the man's question more directly. He cites in his answer the Ten Commandments, but specifically he cites Commandments 5 through 9. So he cites the Fifth through the Ninth Commandments in giving him examples of what he would do if he wants to inherit eternal life. Now, one thing you should have noticed right up front, of course, is this is not an exhaustive list. What Jesus is doing here is not literally giving the man a recipe for entering into the kingdom. He's essentially just laying out a few thoughts, a few representative examples, which are really just intended to reveal the fact that you can't get there in the way the man is trying to do it. And he particularly notes commandments. These commandments he he notes out of the ten are the ones that relate to our relationship with other men. These are the commandments within the ten that deal with how we relate to other men, but with one notable exception. That exception is the tenth commandment, which is the one that deals with coveting. He notably doesn't mention that one. Of course, the earlier commandments as well, one through four, are not mentioned either. And the most notable of those is the first one, which says you have no other God beyond the Lord God. You don't have any idols, in other words. So to this response, this response of Christ, the man gives his bold answer. He says he has kept them since his youth. Now, obviously, it is extremely unlikely. In fact, I think it's fair to say it's impossible that this man has literally kept these five commandments perfectly as he claims to have done. So though his words would suggest that, I think if you had pinned him down in the moment, you probably would have been able to succeed in getting him to admit that, well, yeah, maybe on a couple of times I slipped up, but, you know, mostly I have done those commandments. I think that's probably the intent of what he's saying. Because remember, he doesn't understand the true definition of good. For he's using a sliding scale in his appreciation of what goodness is, and he sees himself as near the top of that scale. Not realizing that the scale is actually not a scale, it's a point, and he's not that point. And anything otherwise is not good. Now, Jesus, you have to give some credit here, because he's humoring the man nonetheless, right? So he humors him for the moment, and he he doesn't really argue this point. And so he says, in response, I, I think of it as lowering the boom. He lowers the boom on this guy. In the response, he says, give up your wealth and worship me. And in that statement, he he basically covers commandments 10 and 1. Give up your wealth and follow me. In giving up wealth, he's demanding that the man repent of his preference for material wealth over heavenly wealth. And, And if you're tempted to think this might be an unreasonable demand, you know, 
Doesn't that seem a bit harsh for Jesus to expect this guy to just walk away from all his wealth? I mean, after all, can't rich people be saved? Is it a precondition of salvation that you have no material wealth? Well, remember that he did ask all the disciples to leave everything behind and follow Christ, and they did that. They left their nets. They left their boat. They left their tax-collecting booth, whatever they had. They walked away. So, before we go too far down that road, just remember, he did make that same demand of the disciples, and they obeyed it. And I think I should also say in passing that, yes, it is obvious enough from Scripture that not having wealth is not in itself a precondition of salvation. We'll talk about that more here in a minute when we look at Jesus' teaching to the disciples. But just understand, it's not an unreasonable demand, and it's not an unprecedented demand, and it's one that others have had no problem obeying when they felt the Holy Spirit calling them into that relationship. And then there's that other commandment that he captured in the statement. He asked the man to follow him, and essentially that would mean to worship him, to be his disciple, in other words. It's the essence of the first commandment. Follow God, not the world. Worship God, not idols. Put God first in your heart. Don't ask him to compete with the other things that you find attractive and comforting in this world. I want you to know here that the other Gospels record that this man left Jesus at this point. You don't see it in Luke's Gospel, but in the other Gospels, he wasn't just sad. He was sad and he walked away. That was the end of the story for that man. Why did he leave? Well, because he wasn't willing to do what was required of him, right? Because he didn't want to agree to the terms. He couldn't turn his back on the world. He couldn't leave it behind. Which means the attraction of that wealth and of the world was so great that not even a sincere interest in reaching the kingdom was enough to pull him away. Think about that for a minute. If we grant for a moment the possibility that this this man came with a sincere interest in wanting to get into the kingdom, he wasn't faking it. He really wants to get into the kingdom of God. He's just been told how to do it. Not in literal terms, mind you. Christ was testing his heart. And yet, he walks away. And if you want further proof that his desire was sincere, look at how he walks away. Sad. Not angry. Not defiant. Not confused. Not debating the point. Sad, which would tell me that he agreed. He, there was a mental assent to Christ's truth. A recognition that, yeah, you're right. If I want to enter the kingdom, I'm going to have to give up too much. And I'm sad about that fact. And I walk away. That tells us a lot about the depravity of the human heart. It appears as though he felt conviction and perhaps even a repentance of sorts, but not a repentance leading unto salvation, as Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians, but rather worldly sorrow. So this man's encounter with Jesus came as a result of his searching for a formula that would grant him entrance into a kingdom, a methodology, a system, rules, processes, activities of the, of the body and of the, of the mind, things I have to do, think, say, and whatever, so that when I've done all those things, God is pleased with me and I've gained my entrance into the kingdom. Works-based theology by any other name. And his opening sta- in his opening statement, Jesus says, the standard for reaching God is so unapproachable that only God Himself meets it. But if you're interested in going down that road... It won't take long before we find you lacking in something. He says, I've done all those things since my youth. And he says, you know, you lack one thing. It's a big thing. You lack a true heart to put God first in your life. You lack the heart in which the seed can take root. You lack the ability to hear the gospel and believe. It's a big thing that you lack. 
And when Jesus points out the deficiency, the only result is sadness. The man lacked the power in himself to turn away from the sin that condemned him. And now the final two verses for today. And I want you to look at how these verses wrap up where I've been going and where the whole theme of this chapter is headed. Look in the last four verses, actually. Luke 18, 24. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? And he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. As this pathetic man walks away from Jesus into the assurance of damnation for unbelief, Jesus remarks to his disciples how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom. So he's kind of having a little side moment of teaching with his disciples in light of what's just happened with this rich man. And he says, it's easier for, you've heard this, right? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a famous phrase, right? In other words, it's impossible. Now, there, I want you to know, there is no trick or secret to this statement. There's no little you know, secret insight I'm going to throw on you that turns this phrase into something else and gives you some special insight. It literally means what it says on its face. Just as it is impossible for a literal camel to go through a little, literal eye of the needle, it is impossible for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. But how can this be? I mean, we have examples out of the Bible like Abraham and David, and Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, according to Scripture, who we know, God has said, are among his people to enter into heaven, to be a part of the kingdom. So how can it be that these three very rich men, and by the way, God made them rich, would not be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven? We know that they are going to be there. So what is the point of Jesus saying it's impossible for a man to do this, for a wealthy man to enter? Well, remember again the context of his chapter here. We're speaking about the nature of saving faith. This is a chapter teaching us about the nature of salvation and of faith itself. Consider the earlier discussions in the chapter. Jesus says earlier in this same chapter, those who humble themselves will see the kingdom. Those who recognize that they have nothing to offer God, rather than those who assume they have everything going their way. What was the quintessential example out of the second parable? Pharisee, tax collector. The Pharisee who thought he had everything God needed from him versus the tax collector who knew he had nothing to offer God and was humble and cast himself on God's mercy. And remember the children, the ones who come with no pretense, no assumptions about what they can offer God, no, nothing of value in their life that they would assume will mean God will accept them because of that value. They come to God purely as an innocent in faith toward God. Considering all that, what does Jesus mean by rich? By wealth. Yes, the man who stood before him had material wealth. We all know that. But just like he's done at multiple points along the way in this chapter, taking a literal moment and teaching a spiritual truth from that literal moment, do that here again. In literal terms, a rich man. In spiritual terms, the spiritual point he makes to the disciples is what? The ruler wasn't just rich in the sense of his worldly wealth. Look at what he said to Jesus. He said he had already done everything he needed to meet God's test for the kingdom. He was rich in the sense that he had already obtained everything necessary to get himself into the kingdom. That was his sense of it, wasn't it? I've got my ticket. I am wealthy in the sense that I have earned salvation. I am ready to enter. I've done it all. Just like the Pharisee who said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that man. 
Wealth in that sense here. Remember his statement in verse 21, I have kept all these since my youth. And the statement of the Pharisee in verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter, who had everything going for him. A man who is self-confident in the wealth of righteousness. In his righteousness before God. It was impossible. It will always be literally impossible for men who are rich in this sense to inherit eternal life because they are banking on the wrong things. Pardon the pun. They're banking on the wrong kinds of things to get into heaven. They have misjudged God's standards of goodness. They never realized that their spiritual wealth that they thought they had amounted to nothing more than filthy rags in God's eyes. What they counted as spiritual wealth deserving of eternal life where filthy rags were the only of the wages of sin. Eternal death. And they had never humbled themselves like the tax collector or like children. The point of this chapter, therefore, is reinforced even further with the disciples' question as they ask it in verse 26. They ask him the obvious question, well, who could be saved then, Jesus? (laughs) I mean, really, what hope is there for any of us? In their mind, what did they just see with that rich man? From a Jewish perspective, a man who had kept the law, a ruler, an upstanding member of society, a magistrate, somebody worthy of praise and honor, and rich on top of that, which in Jewish culture, in many ways even today, we look upon people who are wealthy as having received the blessings of God. That their wealth in some way is sort of an evidence of God's happiness with them. We even teach that if we're not careful, right? Some men who would teach the Word incorrectly would try to read out of the Word a teaching that says that if you're pleasing God, He will make you wealthy. A fundamentally unbiblical teaching. But it reflects the same kind of thinking that's evident for these men looking at these, this, this ruler. They're saying, it'd be like me pointing out Billy Graham and saying, you know what, he's not getting into heaven. You'd be like, if he can't get in, what hope is there for the rest of us? Now, I'm not saying Billy Graham is like this rich ruler, of course. I'm simply making a comparison from our day to their day. In their day, this guy would have been the equivalent, in some respects, of the Billy Graham of his day. Upstanding, righteous, good man of society who had every reason to expect eternal life. And Jesus says, it's impossible for that man to get into heaven. There's no hope. Who can be saved? And what does Jesus say? In response to that question, he says very simply, what you can't do, God can do. What's impossible for people is possible for God. And here again, two profound statements in that one phrase. First, he declares saving faith to be an impossible act for men. Remember, we're talking about salvation here. We're talking about getting into heaven. The eternal life that's been the issue every single one of these points as we've gone through chapter 18. So he says, what's impossible for men? What is he talking about? Salvation. What you and I literally could never do and cannot do is possible for God. So the first point of that profound statement is you cannot produce salvation in your own effort. You can't do it. Anyone who would teach you could is not understanding Scripture. Men cannot, in their own power, come to salvation. And this fact is best illustrated in the rich man's response to Christ's call. When you consider how Jesus called the disciples, He used much the same words as He used to this man. He didn't use magic words for the disciples and somehow ambiguous words for the rich man. He used the same words. But the disciples followed when this ruler wouldn't. And the difference was their wealth. Not the wealth of their earthly fortune, but of their spiritual fortune. I mean, remember Matthew, the tax collector, despised by his own people, hated by the Jews, recognizing his own unworthiness, no doubt, for the, for the things he's done in his life. And then a man like Jesus comes along and, and says, follow me. 
And it's just what he was looking for. What does Matthew say in the, in the discourse, that famous discourse where he says, in the Beatitudes we call it, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The same principle being espoused here. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty before God are ready for the grace that God offers. The irony of that is such a stunning revelation to me. You can know you need it, and you can understand that you're in jeopardy, and you still turn away due to the hardness of the heart, because until God is acting in that heart, you can't seek Him. Christ, the Word says, no one seeks God, no, not one. There's no such thing as a seeker, except God Himself. And Jesus, though, in the second half of that statement, He gives us hope. For He says, all things are possible with God. We can't hope to act in a way that saves ourselves, but God is capable of saving us. And how does He do it? Well, in a nutshell, He reaches into our hearts, gives us a new spirit, and He enables us to respond to the call of the Gospel. Go back to the statement I said earlier. Faith comes in the heart, not in the head. Because my heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit, I am now receptive to the Gospel message. And because I am receptive to the Gospel message, when it comes, I agree with it. And that is why Christ says that no one can come to me but that the Father first draw him. There is an act of the Spirit in our hearts that must precede the message of the Gospel to our ears. And by God's power, we come as children. We come as one who has nothing to offer and with a complete trust and dependence upon God for salvation. And through faith, God credits us with His Son's righteousness and we are the lost sheep reclaimed into God's fold. And in this way, Christ will build His church one heart at a time, we're told. Because it is in the seeking of the lost with a knowledge that God has brought them to a readiness for the Gospel that gives us any hope that a message of the nature and of the, of the counterintuitiveness of the Gospel itself would be received. Because it is foolishness to those who are perishing. It has no appeal to the ears of the flesh. It doesn't have anything to offer someone who is looking for what this world can give. It is not the message the world wants. It requires a heart that's been awakened to it so that it would even have a sensibility to it. But to that heart, it is salvation. It is all that you could hope for. And it is that opportunity that drives a true missionary in the message of the gospel. Looking for the lost, that when you bring that message to the person who God has prepared and the response is seen, you know that you are there as God has worked through you to bring someone into the fold. You know that God's at work. And, most importantly, he gains the glory. For he's done, only, he's done what only God can do. And to understand the biblical view of salvation out of the Scripture is to recognize that when a man or woman comes to know the Lord, the only one who should receive credit for that moment is God. He is both the mechanism, the instrument, and the message of the salvation moment. We are all simply conduits through which that message is applied and delivered. To God be the glory. Let's go to prayer and then a time of fellowship as we end the night. Dear Father, thank you so much for your glory in the Word of God and for your grace in the Word of God and for your mercy in your Word, Father, and for your loving kindness in your Word. Father, I pray that the Word tonight as it has reached our ears and buried itself in our hearts would be the motivator, the cause, the motivation, the urgency, and the courage that we need to go out and spread the Word and to spread the Gospel and to be a light. Father, there could be no more urgent time than today. There can be no better time than today. There is no more time potentially tomorrow. We do not know the day and the hour of your return, Father, through your Son. And we pray that 
You would give us a hope to want to do the work of the ministry now and not tomorrow and to be ready to give a a defense for the hope that is within us to any who might ask because we know, Father, there are those out there asking who have been awakened to Your truth and are ready to receive the Gospel and they, they only need a deliverer of that message. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, Father. May we be those feet. I thank you, Father, for the patience and the attention of those who've gathered to study your word with me this uh, this evening, Father. I pray that the word as it has been brought has been truthful and according to your will and to your glory. I pray you to give us opportunity and and a desire to spend our own time in it so that we may continue to be uh, instructed and brought up in it. I thank you as well for this building and the provision of all that's required to bring us here every night. Father, in the week to come, I pray protection, I pray your mercy upon us, I pray your provision as always to each of us and an opportunity to regather according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.